If you've never studied the book of Revelation, I want you to know before we get to chapter 2 and 3 that these chapters are radical. In fact, they're, they're quite a unique section of Scripture. While the New Testament itself is largely filled with either historical accounts of history, the development of a story like the Gospels, the book of Acts, or various letters that the apostles sent to either churches or church leaders, the Pauline epistles, the pastoral epistles, these two chapters, Revelation 2 and 3, present for us the only section, not just in the New Testament, the entire Bible, written by Jesus himself. It's very unique. Like, for example, when chapter 2, verse 1 opens, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, keep in mind, most incredibly, that that is actually the voice of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, dictating to his servant John what he wanted him to write down. Since this is the case, not only will we take the necessary time to work our way through each letter with care, but this section is of such significance, and it's multi-layered, that it kind of demands in a lot of ways an introduction unto itself. Now before we continue, I need to make a confession. Can I make a confession to you guys this morning? Just a, It's a simple confession. I love the church. I really do. Like, I love meeting Creighton here at the building early to boot things up, to make sure everything is clean, to ensure everything is in working order. I love watching the volunteers show up early to either usher or make coffee or run sound or lights or the computer to lead worship to teach the kids. I love seeing over the next 30, 45 minutes the sanctuary fill with the bustle of activity to hear God's people then worship. The solemnness of this place as we collectively together open and study His Word. I I'm a church geek. Like, full disclosure, I love felt boards, sock puppets, and the crafts that teach our kids about Jesus. I love hearing the little ones have fun with the hand motion sing-alongs about how much Jesus loves them or how Zacchaeus was a wee little man or the books of the Bible. I love watching the kids come out of their classrooms to show off their psychedelic, multicolored, outside-the-lines masterpiece portraits of Jesus or some other biblical character or scene they were learning about in the morning. I love it when I have the opportunity to pray with you to pray for those that are in need. I love watching you pray for one another or when you come up to receive prayer from one of the elders. I love seeing people commune with Jesus when they come during our worship service to the Lord's table. I love it. I, I, I relish the opportunities when I see people get baptized to that experience, letting the world know they're all in. I love watching people use their God-given talent in the service of King Jesus. I'm so encouraged when a, a, someone, a member of the community, of our community, takes that step to not just see church as a place to be served, but to serve. When a family moves from attending to contributing. I love hearing stories of missionaries around the world doing the work of Jesus in foreign lands. I love seeing you guys build relationships over a diversity of age and general interests. Like, I'm blessed when I see a group of you take out the new couple to, to lunch after church. Or when a, a group of young guys 
help put a lift kit on a Jeep of an older gentleman going through a three-quarter life crisis. It encourages me. While the pandemic itself has limited things, I love our potlucks. We'll get back to them soon. I love taking Saturday mornings and, and gathering outdoors around a fire with breakfast to pray with my, my band of brothers and then shoot guns. Along these lines, I love the opportunities that my wife has to get out of the house, a house filled with little ones, to spend time with her, her Christian sisters, whether it's organized or not. I'm a geek for vacation Bible schools and community outreaches and youth group and youth camps, retreats and conferences. Beyond all of this, I love watching people transformed by the gospel of Jesus. To see broken lives or marriages made whole. To watch as people find satisfaction by digging into God's word or being empowered and refreshed by a fresh filling of the spirit. As a pastor, I love watching that aha moment. I see that from time to time. When someone's sitting in the pew or one of the tables, the light bulb goes off to the real implications of God's grace. They get it for the first time. There's nothing better than seeing a person freed from that burden of self-expectations. I love introducing people to Jesus. Now for those of you that, that don't know my story at all, church life is honestly all I've ever known. Some 40 years ago, in September of 1980, my dad started a Calvary Chapel in Stone Mountain, Georgia, when there were just maybe a handful of Calvary chapels this side of the Rockies. His heart was to bring to the Bible Belt a Bible-driven church that taught expositionally, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and cut off all the, all the traditional religiosity. A church that just allowed people to come as they were, knowing that they would be transformed by God's Word. Three years after the church was started, on May 29, 1983, I not only became an Adams, but I became an honorary early member of Calvary Chapel. My point is that church has always been an essential staple to my life. In many ways, it was so foundational, so central, that most of my fondest childhood memories are connected to a, a little building off of 2nd Street or the current property of Calvary Chapel located off of McDaniels Bridge Road, which, by the way, following college, I worked there for a decade pastoring middle and high school students. Like, I know what it's like when a church becomes family as your family prioritizes the role of church. Like I can attest that when a church is operating as she was designed by Jesus to operate, there is really nothing like it in the entire world. It's why after Bible college, I dedicated my life to her service and why Jessica and I have invested ourselves and our family here at Calvary 316. For me, church, it's not a building to visit, or even for that matter, a service to attend. Church is a community that you plug into. In his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, author Paul Tripp, he writes, the church is not a theological classroom. It is a conversion, confession, repentance, reconciliation, forgiveness, and sanctification center where flawed people place their faith in Christ, gathered to know and love him better, and learn to love others as he designed. I say amen to that. And yet, as so many of us know all too well, the reality is that the church of Jesus Christ often falls very short of her mandate to represent the Savior by being a place of 
refuge and healing. In fact, the church can become a place of hurt. To this point, a study conducted on the way that American millennials view Christians discovered that 87% of the world views Christians as being judgmental. 85% as being hypocrites. Like, what a sad indictment of the church. During my, seven, my 37 years spent in the church, I've witnessed firsthand how church life can be nasty and disappointing, especially when people lose sight of the church's calling and his design. Like, I don't think I'm going out on a limb this morning when I say that, that probably a lot of you have experienced similar pain or frustrations, even disillusionment, caused in part by the church itself. Like, not to get overly personal, but I've seen my mom cry herself to sleep over the hurtful things that people in the church have said about my dad or her role in the ministry or even her kids. As a pastor's kid, now senior pastor, I've seen how unfair and downright mean people can be to the pastor's family or, for that matter, one another. Like I've seen both of my parents struggle with the loneliness of the ministry and the difficult task of developing real, lasting friendships. I've seen and experienced firsthand the emotional effects of betrayal. When your intentions are unjustly impugned, your calling placed in question, or your leadership challenged by those who claim to be trusted friends and confidence. I've witnessed the disappointment that occurs when an elder or a pastor falls into a sin that discredits them from continuing and their role in the ministry. And it's hurtful. It stinks. Like the pain is real. When you witness someone that you invest so much time and energy into unexpectedly decide you and your family are no longer good enough, choosing to instead go to another church. Now, people will always say, Zach, you shouldn't take it so personally when someone leaves the church. My response has always been, how can I not? They were my family. Like, it's a brutal experience when you have to explain to your kids why someone they loved just disappeared from their life. I've had to do that. It's terrible. Like, in this summary doesn't even include the friends who've fallen from the faith or those who have stepped back into a lifestyle of sin. This doesn't even begin to address the gossip and slander that ruins lives, the legalistic tendencies that cause genuine Christ followers to question the essence of the gospel. Like beyond our own personal experiences with church and how nasty it can be, like we should be real, honest, something that a lot of church pastors aren't, that history, our history, the church is history presents dark moments. Inquisitions, crusades, indulgences, heresies, institutionalism, intolerance, the Salem witch trials, dissenters being burned at the stake. That was done by the church. Slavery, the persecution of gays, the restriction of contraception, abortion bombing, sexual abuse by Catholic priests and the like. I could go on and on. You see, while it's true, church life, can provide the world a taste of heaven. It's also a reality that she can just as easily sour people to the things of God when she falls short in her mandate. Barna Group found that 37% of unchurched Americans, 37%, cite, quote, painful experiences with the church or people within the church as the reason they no longer attend. 
And it's this pressing reality. Why I cannot stress enough how crucial it is that we, as a church, Calvary 316, seek to operate as Jesus designed. For when we don't, people will get hurt. Our witness in our community will be tarnished and souls lost in the process. Which leads me to a a question we should all consider this morning. Like, what do we do when the church fails to live up to her calling? Like, what do we do when we get hurt? Do we give up on the church? Do we criticize her? Do we demean her? Or do we seek to be part of the solution? In an article posted a few years ago in Relevant Magazine, titled The Wrong Way to Criticize the Church, Jared Lafitte, he writes the following. As long as the church is made up of sinners in need of grace, we'll have issues. And we need mature, wise, careful voices to speak to our issues. But there is a a difference between looking for ways to make the church better and looking for things to complain about. Mature, humble criticism is selfless and redemptive. Immature criticism is usually self-focused and doesn't generally lead to change. Humble criticism means noticing a problem and articulating solutions instead of looking for problems and wallowing in anger. It means being temporarily disappointed without being permanently disillusioned. He continues, when I feel tempted towards being jaded, I have to catch myself. I can offer criticism, but I can't allow myself to be constantly jaded about the evangelical subculture because I'm part of it. As much as I feel tempted to criticize it, I am it. I've sinned and broken promises and lived in inconsistent ways, just like the Christians I can be cynical about. What right would I have to be jaded and leave the church over one issue when I fail in another? Wise words. Like, please understand a component of Christianity that many people overlook. Brace yourself. Loving the church is not optional. Like, it's simply a truth that if you claim to genuinely love Jesus, then you're going to love the things that he loves. And what does he love? The church. She's his bride. In fact, it's always struck me as odd when someone claims to love Jesus but is bitter and hateful and spiteful towards the church, his wife. Like, Jessica and I, we're a package deal. And because of that, it's impossible. Just getting this out there. You can't love me and hate my wife at the same time. That doesn't work. Christian, well, you can be upset with the church and even find yourself frustrated by her. If you love Jesus, may I encourage you to refuse to give up on her. For we're told in 1 Corinthians 12 that love, it suffers long. It bears all things. It endures all things. In 1 Peter 4 verse 8, we read that above all, the old apostle would encourage, have a fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. That's the type of church I want to be a part of. Friends, a go it alone, I don't need the church, I prefer my faith to be private form of Christianity, doesn't exist. And it's not an option for the Christ follower. 
for better or worse, because you are the church. You're either a continuation of her problems or you're a part of her solutions. But there is no escaping the personal responsibility we all should share for how the church operates. Now, I'm encouraged to know that Jesus, Jesus, he understood right from the beginning that his church would struggle in this this plan of operating as he intended. He, He knew that we would have problems. I mean, it's true that Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, that he would build his church so that the gates of Hades shouldn't prevail against it. But it's also a reality that he knew he was handing day-to-day operations off to a group of sinners, making problems unavoidable. (laughs) He looks around at the 18, the apostles, and he's like, you guys are going to lead the church. He had to have known, uh uh-oh, right? I mean, he's he's got Peter, who speaks first, thinks second. I relate to that. Like, that was abrasive and and kind of a bull in a china shop. He had that personality. Like, as Jesus is going to the cross, he's wanting to make his way through Samaria, and James and John, they're not allowed to go in. So James and John literally go to Jesus, you know, pillars of the church. And they're like, yeah, Jesus, these jerks aren't letting us through. Just give us permission. We'll go rain down fire from heaven and kill them all. Like, shit. The A-team, right? Like, Jesus knew that there would be issues, that there would be problems. And this is why, this is why, I find the first three chapters of the book of Revelation so vitally important and worthy of our consideration. You see, by the time John is given this revelation, the church is roughly 60 years old. And in the course of these years, she has grown beyond just this one church community in Jerusalem. She's a global institution unique, uniquely multi-ethnic, multicultural, economically diverse. You had masters and slaves in the same church community worshiping together. You know, one of the the great misconceptions, again, of Christianity is that this original apostolic church, the first church, the church of Acts, was somehow pure and undefiled. Like, have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard, like, a church pastor, a church leader, you know, get up and challenge the, the modern church by saying that, you know, we need to return to the way it was originally. The first church, the pure church, the undefiled church, a church that changed the world. That's what we need to get back to. Yeah. Ugh. Like th- that, that idea, by the way, lacks zero biblical understanding. Like you see the vast majority of your New Testament. Like the reason that we have these books in our Bible is because they were written by Paul or one of the other apostles to do what? To address church communities in complete and utter dysfunction. Like, like let me run down just a general list of the issues the first church dealt with. Okay? Racial tensions. Class conflicts. Arguments over legalism. They argued about politics. Should we pay our taxes? Should we submit to Caesar? There was issues of sexual immorality, disunity, heresies. There were lawsuits between Christians that the apostles had to address. Like, don't sue each other. 
Women were bickering with one another. They discussed church government, denominationalism. I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Christ. I'm a Methodist. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Presbyterian. I don't even know what that means. Like on and on. It sounds familiar. Like the same problems we deal with today, they dealt with then. Why? Because both churches were led by sinners. And the people that filled the pew were sinners. See, knowing that his church would go through these types of struggles. Through this revelation given to John, before Jesus even gets into future events, beginning in chapter 4, he takes time uniquely to remind the church of a few important things. He reminds the church of her purpose in the world. He provides the church a fresh revelation of himself and specifically a revelation that includes his present activity, like what Jesus is doing. Before then, speaking to the church through these seven letters dealing with issues that were limiting the church's effectiveness. If you want to be the type of church or part of the type of church that is a blessing to the world around us and not a curse, like we need to always keep our purpose and focus, our eyes fixated on the glorified Jesus and our ears and hearts open to receive the word that he has for his church. Now in our setup to the seven letters, there are a few things that we need to kind of go back to chapter one and discuss that we didn't fully get into. Look back at verse 9. I'm just going to kind of give you a flyby in case you weren't with us the last few weeks. Verse 9 of chapter 1, I, John, both your brother and companion, and the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, John, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And as we noted last Sunday, John was exiled to Patmos by the emperor Domitian. It's Sunday, it's the Lord's day. John gets caught up into the spirit. He hears a loud voice behind him. We know this to be Jesus, instructing him to write in a book all the things he's about to see to send it to these churches. Verse 19, by the way, the instructions of what to write get ex expanded, specified. He says, write the things in verse 19 that you have seen. And this was chapter one of the resurrected, glorified Jesus. Write the things which are, which we're about to get to in chapters two and three. And then write the things which will take place after this. Verse 12, John he adds, so I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, down to the feet, girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white, like wool, as white as snow. His eyes, like a flame of fire, the penetration of his, his gaze. His feet were like fine brass, sturdy, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice had the authority of, of the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Not a little dinky dagger. I mean, this was a, a two-edged, four-foot-long battle sword. His countenance 
was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Now, before specifically addressing each of these seven churches of Asia Minor based in these cities, and we're given the list with a series of letters, the first thing that Jesus does, and this is important, before he writes anything or says anything, Jesus wants to subtly remind the church, all seven, and by extension all of us, what our purpose is in the world. And Jesus does this in a really interesting way. Like, you notice, again, the first thing that catches John's attention. So he hears this voice, and he turns, and he sees what? Turn to see the voice, and he sees seven. First thing, seven golden lampstands. Again, just reiterating a few things we addressed last Sunday. In the inner chambers of the tabernacle and then the temple, the, the light, the only light that existed was provided by a single golden lampstand that had seven branches so one big lampstand with seven branches this piece of furniture was known as the menorah and symbolically the menorah served to illustrate how the nation of israel had been called called out of the world and commissioned by god to be his light of revelation unto the world that's what the menorah symbolized now what's interesting about this revelation is John, when he turns in this vision, he doesn't see the golden menorah. Instead, he sees seven individual golden lampstands. So get the picture in your mind. Seven individual pieces of furniture, seven golden lampstands. And this would have confused John. While so many things would have had an Old Testament reference that he could have referred back to, this, this lacked a precedent. It's not the menorah. It's like the menorah, but this is different. And so to avoid any confusion, what happens? Jesus, in verse 20, he says, John, just so you're not confused, these seven golden lampstands, you want to know what they are? They are the seven churches. So no confusion. We know what they are. While each lamp served the same purpose of providing light, unlike the menorah, each lamp was independent from one another. You know, in the Old Testament, the dispensation, the way it all worked, it was very simple, right? God called out Israel, gave her a holy land, placed her there, built a temple, my presence is there. And then what happened? He instructed the world. If you want to come, you want to interact with me, if you want the light of revelation, you come to the temple, to this physical location, and that's how you encounter me. That was the whole blueprint of the Old Testament model. What's What's fascinating is that Jesus completely flipped this script on its head. Instead of instructing the world to come to a place to encounter him, what did Jesus do? The Great Commission. He filled individual people with his spirit. And he says, go into the world, making disciples, being that light, being that witness. No longer was the world to come to a place. Jesus changed hearts and sent those people unto the planet. 
One commentator explains kind of the difference. He says, God had but one church of the Jews, symbolized by the menorah. But in these lampstands, we see that he had many churches, lights of revelation unto the Gentiles. The difference. Now, the symbolism of the the lampstands is significant. Because before Jesus says anything to these churches, he's reminding them here, these seven churches, that their foundational purpose in the world was what? To be a vessel whereby his light would shine into the darkness. That was their purpose. That's the function of the church. We're to be the light, to shine the light. Let me give you some proof text to this. In John 8, verse 12, Jesus said, he says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have, possess the light of life. Then in Matthew 5, verse 16, he adds, so let your light so shine before men, a light that originates in us. No, 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 no. Jesus is the light of the world. When we follow him, he gives us this light. He puts it within us. This transformation, this new countenance, this new spirit. I'm different. Have you ever noticed that sometimes you'll run into, you'll run into someone you don't know? Just kind of in happens chance. And, and, and you kind of, you leave the experience thinking, I bet you they're a Christian. Like you didn't talk Christ, you didn't talk church, didn't talk shop, none of that. But you just left with an impression. Like you could see it. Something's different about that person. I think I know. Hey, do you follow Jesus? Absolutely. This happens to me all the time because I talk to strangers. But Jesus is the light of the world. He gives this light to us. And then the instruction is let your light shine. In, in, this, in the parable, he talks about, you know, no one places a lamp under a basket. No, you put it up on a hill so it shines brightly. He adds the purpose so that the world might see your good works but glorify your Father in heaven. British theologian, commentator Adam Clark, he made this important observation. He writes, quote, A lamp is not a light in itself. It is only the instrument of dispensing light. That's what the church is. And it must receive both oil and fire before it can dispense any. So no church has in itself either grace or glory. It must receive all from Christ its head, else it can disperse neither light nor life. Jesus is in the midst of these lampstands. These lampstands are vessels to shine a light, but he's doing something, isn't he? See, this is where we segue. Jesus, he provides this revelation of himself. Because John, he sees the lampstands, but then he focuses on the one in the midst of the lampstands, right? Jesus and his heavenly activity. So we know what the purpose of the church is to be, to where to shine his light. But we know what Jesus in the midst of the church is doing. He's tending to the lampstands. Last Sunday, we, we, we unpacked this incredible, radical description of the glorified Jesus. So I'll just refer you to the tape if you want a, a larger explanation. And I really don't want to belabor the point, but I can't overemphasize. Before we discuss his activity, just his person here. Like, we should never, ever lose sight as a church of who it is we actually follow. Especially in trying times and difficult seasons, in the face of opposition, we need to remember that we follow Jesus. David Guzik, he he writes why this description of Jesus is important. And then there's kind of a criticism tied into it. He says, "In in, in our modern pictures of Jesus... Like the way that we like to think about Jesus. Guzik observes, we like to think of him 
as he was. But we should think of him as he is. I think that's helpful. Like Jesus may have been meek and mild, but we need to remember of his, his present strength, his tenacity, his power, his authority. He might have presented himself as a suffering servant, but he is presently our king. King Jesus. I, in my own vernacular, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to develop more of that discipline of referring to Jesus, not just as Jesus, but with a title. To talk about King Jesus. You know, I think we get too cuddly with Jesus. You know, meek and mild Jesus. You know, I just want to just nestle up right next to him. Now, now, it's King Jesus. Like, he's a king. He's our king of a kingdom that he's going to bring. And the description we're given is not coot and cuddly Jesus. It's powerful Jesus. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Alexander the Great, probably the, the greatest leader and military leader of all time. He makes this observation about leadership. He says, I'm not afraid of an army of lions led by a sheep. I'm afraid of an army of sheep led by a lion. And we are led by the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, this morning, I want to I want to get back to two details of this revelation of the glorified Jesus that we only briefly touched on. In verse 16, John notes how Jesus had in his hand, so he's possessing something. He had in his right hand seven stars. And then lacking again an Old Testament understanding of what this would have been, Jesus explains to John in verse 20 that the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Again, we kind of unpacked this last Sunday. We touched on it. That the word angel in the Greek, it means messenger. And it's very unlikely that this is an actual angelic being somehow given charge over each of these seven churches. It's much more likely the case that this is a representative of, of a human uh, authority of each church, probably the pastors. It's worth pointing out, this is not in his left hand, but his right hand. And the right hand signified, represented authority. Like in a sense, by holding the pastors of these churches in his right hand, Jesus has granted them a position of authority, but a position that also comes with a measure of great accountability. You know, it's true that Jesus is the head of every church, but he extends his authority through human representatives. This is why those human representatives need to take their responsibilities very seriously. Because you're representing Jesus by extension and his authority over the church. This is why James said, chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that they will receive a stricter judgment. The famous preacher Charles Spurgeon makes an interesting observation. Yes, these pastors, these, they're referred to as stars, they're held in Jesus' hand. Like, lest any pastor get pumped up, they could, I am a star in Jesus' hand. Spurgeon said this, he says, what do you see in Christ's right hand? Seven stars. Yet how insignificant they appear when you get a sight of his face. Who can see seven stars, or for that matter, 70,000 stars, when the sun is shining in its strength? How sweet it is when the Lord himself is so present in a congregation that the preacher, whomever he may be, is altogether forgotten. That's what I want to be. I hate the celebrity pastor craze. Because it puts glory in the wrong place. And it's why so many of them fail and fall. I loved it about Pastor Chuck. Anytime someone gave, I tried to give a, a clap, he just pointed. 
And everybody in the congregation would stop, point, and they would point. Chuck was always careful to remind, it's Jesus. It's about Jesus. It's about him. I'm just a conduit, just a vessel who can see a star when there's the sun. I love it. Not only does Jesus have these pastors in his hand, but also notice from John's vision what Jesus is doing. Again, he sees Jesus in the midst of the seven lampstands. So he's in the middle of these churches. You know, even when the church proves to be as dysfunctional as many of these seven are, I'm encouraged, again, because of his love for the church, that Jesus is still in her midst. He has not bailed on her. He has not given up. He has not departed. He hasn't divorced her. Additionally, kind of as a side point, I should mention that if you're looking for Jesus this morning, like if you're wanting to encounter Jesus, you know the best place to find him, according to this text? is in the midst of his church. That's where Jesus is. That's where he's hanging out. So if you want to find Jesus, go to church. Now take note of his activity in the midst. He sees one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment to his feet, girded about the chest. He's in the midst of these seven lampstands. And we know from this description that Jesus is fulfilling presently his role as high priest by tending to these seven golden lampstands. Like a lampstand has to be tended to, has to be cared for, in order for it to maximize and continue its brightness. It's amazing, but 11 times in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is referred to in his resurrected role as being our great high priest. This is significant. For it means that Jesus is not only in the midst of his church, but he's actively tending to the lamps so that they continue to burn brightly. As our high priest, this requires Jesus to honestly evaluate each lamp and then act when necessary. You see, as a high priest, there are times, and it was, by the way, in the Old Testament, the, 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 the maintaining of the menorah, that job was reserved only to the high priest. No other priest could do it. It was only the high priest, again, the symbolism carrying over, who... Who has the authority over his church? It's Jesus. He is the high priest. They're individual lamps, but he's got to deal with them to maximize brightness. And that requires sometimes the oil's low, right? So what would a good priest do? He would add oil. And sometimes the Lord needs to pour out his spirit on a church that's running out of energy and power. He evaluates. There needs to be a fresh filling. Other times, he's like, man, there's plenty of oil, but there's something wrong with this wick, right? It's gotten charred, it's, it's lost its, its uniqueness, its flavor, and so he has to trim back the wick. Sometimes Jesus prunes a church so that it grows healthier. Other times, you need to replace the lamp altogether. Interesting, not one of these seven churches still exists. Understand, before Jesus says anything to these seven churches, he wants to remind them of their purpose, to shine his light into the world, and make sure they understood who it was that was speaking, the high priest. Not only does Jesus have the authority to evaluate his church, to criticize when necessary, he has the authority to address any issue within his church that are of concern to him. As the high priest, it is his role and it is his prerogative to do so. Now, in a broad overview of these seven letters, and you'll see this as we work our way through them, you'll notice they all follow a general pattern. So this is kind of a, a, the more formal introduction here. Each letter 
will begin by being addressed to, quote, the angel of the church of fill in the blank. So it's addressed to the pastor of this local church. Each letter closes with the same admonition. So it begins the same way. It ends the same way. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then it's between these two bookends that at some point in each letter, Jesus does a set of things. He commends what he finds commendable. Now, the exception to this will be the churches of Sardis and Laodicea in which there was nothing commendable. Jesus will also, you'll notice, condemn what he finds condemnable. Again, the the exception to this will be Smyrna and Philadelphia in which there was no flaw. At some point, Jesus will emphasize, in the context of this, a, a part of his person relevant to what's going on before then providing the necessary instruction and warning. So every letter follows this same pattern. Same beginning, same end, same substance. Very orderly. Now, in order to unpack, though, the fullness, the totality of what Jesus articulates through these seven letters, you need to know, again, up front, that there are four ways that each letter should be viewed. I think all four ways they should be viewed. So we're not picking and choosing which one. I think they all four, each of these different ways of reading the letter, if you combine the perspective, it gives you a greater understanding of what Jesus is really saying, which we'll do. Like first, there's no doubt that Jesus is writing to a local church located in each of these seven ancient cities. So when Jesus writes to the church of Ephesus, he's actually writing to a group of people in Ephesus that make up the church. Like you will see this, that the substance of each letter will include distinct references to unique issues and circumstances particular to a group of believers living in these ancient cities towards the end of the first century. So we should read each letter as Jesus is actually talking to an actual church. Okay, so that's the first thing. Secondly, we understand that through these seven letters, Jesus is relaying a message to every church throughout all time, including our church. Again, bibliology within Scripture, the number seven is not a coincidence. It's significant. It signifies completion. Seven days make up a complete week. Seven notes, a scale. I mentioned last Sunday, but the Apostle Paul would also only write to seven churches. Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Colossae, Philippi, and Thessalonica. Jesus, by the way, the kingdom parables, you want to guess how many there were? Seven. Again, the idea is that while Jesus here is writing to an individual church, in choosing seven, he was in effect addressing every church throughout all time. In fact, each of these letters, you'll notice, closes with the admonition specifically, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Like In many ways, Jesus will use these seven letters to highlight and articulate various pitfalls that every church needs to caution against if we're wanting to be the church Jesus has called us to be. So every letter, there's something our church should take from it. Thirdly, it would appear in choosing these specific seven churches that Jesus was also writing to the universal church 
with each letter addressing a different time period or movement within church history. I, I know that might sound trippy, but there's a lot of evidence to validate this. Like, not only does Jesus, again, choose seven, completion, but it's significant that he chose these seven, leaving out, by the way, much larger churches in the region. Like, these seven, it's just interesting that Jesus would pick them. He could have picked Colossae or Miletus or Troas, bigger churches in the area, but he picks these in particular. In line with this point, the structuring of Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, the outline for the book, right? The things which, which you have seen, the things which are, the things which will be, that will come after this. It supports this notion. Like before addressing future events, Jesus tells John, write the things which are, present tense then, present tense now. Like beginning with the day of Pentecost and continuing to this very moment, we find ourselves, we are presently in an age known as the church age. See, in addressing seven and picking seven, I believe Jesus was doing something prophetic. I think he was addressing movements within church history, dealing with specific things that were relevant. We'll get into this in more detail, but let me just kind of give you an overview. In Ephesus, he was addressing the post-apostolic church, so the, the second generation. Smyrna, the persecuted church. Pergamos, the Byzantine church. Thyatira, the Roman Catholic church. Sardis, Protestantism. Philadelphia, the missional church, the faithful church. And lastly, Laodicea, which is the apostate, the lukewarm church. It's also worth noting that the last four not only overlap, but they all go up to the tribulational period, with some of them continuing into it. Now to recap, each letter, Jesus is writing to an actual church, every church, and movements within church history. But finally, the fourth way we should read these things is that Jesus is writing to you and to me. Like as we get into our study, you'll note that each letter again closes with the same invocation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Like if you take your hands and put them on your face and then just move to the outer edges, you will find these floppy things called ears. You have ears. Him who has an ear. In fact, if you've lost an ear, you're still included because it's singular. Un-ear. You only need one. Like, well, I can't hear out of this one. That's okay. There's another one. It's un-ear. He who has un-ear. At least one. You need to listen to what the Spirit says. You know, churches don't have ears. People do. Though each letter is addressed to a local church, it's clear the message is intended for a much larger audience with the application being for the individual hearer. So there's a lot Jesus wants to say to you and to me. In every letter, Jesus will address something in that local church. There'll be something applicable for every church as well as something relevant for a movement within the church history. But in the end, each letter will contain a particular application for you and for me individually, which is what makes this incredible because it's Jesus actually speaking. In closing, I love the church. I hope you do too. I love the people that Jesus loves, and I hope you can say that as well. I hope you know that Jesus and his bride are a package deal. 
That's why I love coming every Sunday and spending time with her. If you don't feel that way, because you've been burned in the past, my heart breaks for you. But it's my prayer that, that your time here at Calvary 316 will, will renew, I pray, that love that our church provides everyone who walks in a freshness, a taste of what heaven will be, that we can be the church that Jesus wants us to be. And yet, if we're to do this, we have to keep our purpose in focus. We're just a lamp, just a tool that Jesus uses to shine his light into the world. As such, it's vitally important we keep our eyes fixed on the resurrected Jesus. We are led by a lion who's in our midst. But we must, my friends, keep our ears open to receive and apply the things that Jesus, as our high priest, wants to share with our church through each of the seven letters we'll be looking at in the next several weeks. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for that lead-in to this incredible section of Scripture. 